Hey, welcome to Oasis Singles. My name is Pastor Dave, and I'm so excited you're here. By the way, this site is not just about Christian dating service reviews and so forth, but it's also about life advice, all things Christian single. We have our Genesis chapter 2, verse 20. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man. And he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. Heavenly Father, guide us as we look into your word. We pray that you would teach us and help us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to begin tonight uh, a study on what the Bible says about divorce and remarriage. And uh, it's actually six sermons long. And I'm going to stick a little closer to some notes that I normally don't have because I don't want to ramble. And uh, what we want to do is look at what the Bible says. Now, it's very important that we understand at times you might be thinking we need to move on quickly. But we need to lay a foundation at the very beginning. Because when we come to some important texts of the New Testament, we need to know some background so we can understand what they mean. Otherwise, we'll be floundering around. There, at the end of the uh, series, there's going to be, we're going to put them all on some CDs. And uh, they met, asked me to mention, if you want to wait, you can have the CDs. If you want to order them one at a time to study, uh, you can do that as well. Okay? First, as we begin, we need to make a few brief comments. Number one, the issue of divorce and remarriage is very important. It's not just a discussion that happens to take place among people uh, who are not associated with people who are struggling from real issues. It is a very important issue. Several weeks ago, a man in his 30s called and he said, Pastor John, I need your advice. Now, he's a godly man. He loves the Lord Jesus Christ. He's never been married. He says, I met a young girl and uh, she's uh, in her 30s as well. She has two children and her husband left her uh, some years ago. He's married to someone else and she goes to the same church I go to. He used to come here and he's moved. And uh, I want you to tell me what God says. Can she be married? Can I marry her? And all of a sudden, the all the thoughts about divorce and remarriage, uh, you know, come right to the forefront because you're dealing with a real person who wants some advice. He wants what God says. A number of years ago, a 19-year-old girl came into my office. I'll never forget her. And uh, she had loved the Lord. She was somewhat naive, might say very naive. And she married a young man whom she thought loved the Lord. And uh, as they went away on their honeymoon after they were married, uh, they had a terrible time. When they came home from their honeymoon, he left her for an old girlfriend. 
He dated the old girlfriend and then he married the old girlfriend after he divorced his wife. She came into my office at 19 years old. She said, Pastor John, I love the Lord with all my heart and I want to do just what God says. What does God say regarding my life? Do I have to stay single the rest of my life? And all of a sudden, the discussion is very important because you're dealing with people's lives. So if you're going to say something from Scripture, if you're going to give advice, you need to at least know that the advice that you give is based upon the Word of God. If you're willing to make comments about God's Word that affect people's lives... You had better put the time in to understand exactly what God says and what he doesn't say. This is one of my biggest beefs with something like this. Everybody seemingly has an opinion, but few people will put the time in to really understand what the crucial issues are. I'm going to sort of have you going one way or another. You're not going to figure out where I am until the end. And I'm going to come out and share some principles uh, in a more orderly way. But as we go through, we're going to look at the issues. And that's what I want you to see. Secondly, the Bible is the final authority in faith and life. Period. The Word of God is that which we go to to get the answers. Now, tradition, the opinions of people, church history, and the authority of the church all have their place. But Scripture is our final authority. We must look at Scripture and build the foundation that we have upon Scripture. Many years ago, uh, when uh, Martin Luther stood before that group of leaders, 200 leaders, and the Diet of Worms in Germany, uh, they uh, wanted him to recant the fact that uh, you are justified by faith and faith alone. And at that point, he said, my conscience is bound by the word of God. Believe me, as I study and I present to you what I believe the Bible teaches, my conscience is bound by the Word of God and not by the whims of people. I will not be influenced by tradition simply because my conscience is bound by the Word of God. And I honestly mean that. Now, we must uh, interpret God's Word correctly. I want to say one more thing. Uh, You cannot just take one verse and build a doctrine on it. You must look at what Scripture says. Now, we're not trying to twist things, but the cults all have a verse. Everywhere you turn, someone has a verse. We need to look at Scripture and say, what does Scripture as a whole teach? Let's put it together. If it could be done in one night, I would do it in one night. But it can't. The Bible is the final authority in faith and life. Number three, you must approach our study with a teachable spirit. You must approach with a teachable spirit. Don't just look for ammunition. Even if you have a position, seek to understand what would be the other position. Ultimately, seek to understand what God's Word says. The best thing that you could do is go into this without a preconceived notion of a position and say, I want to understand what God's Word says as I study this matter. So, you must approach with a teachable spirit. Fourth, fully understand your position. If you're going to have a position, understand it. 
Believe me, all the time people come and have questions about divorce and remarriage. Many people come with statements rather than questions. And in talking about their statements, I clearly can see that they have not studied at all. They've probably never read a book. But they're so firm that this is their position. Asking a question or two, they have no clue what the answer is, but they have a position. You can't have a position unless you can back it up biblically and understand what it means. And that's very important because it's a doctrine that affects the lives of people. Fully understand the position that you have. Fifth, don't misrepresent other positions. Now, there's a whole lot of positions. We're going to look at some of them. We're not going to talk about all of them. I've read over 30 books or articles. I counted them up. And, you know, I don't know if one agrees with with another in every point. There's a lot of different facets. Someone, you can't say, well, you can hold to that position, but I hold to God's word. Or someone uh, once came up about someone who married someone who has been, had to been divorced, and they said, oh, pastor, they believe in divorce and remarriage. They don't believe in the word of God. Don't misrepresent other positions. At least understand what they say and what they don't say. All biblical positions hold that marriage is ordained by God and that God is grieved by its breaking. Incidentally, one position is not necessarily holier than another. A more conservative position is not necessarily more holy or biblical. The Judaizers felt their position was more holy as they restricted people from doing all sorts of things. And Paul said, you know, knock it off. You have freedom in Christ. Those who ate only vegetables in the New Testament felt that they weren't eating meat sacrificed to idols. So their conservative position, they felt, was more holy. A more conservative position is not necessarily more holy, but a more biblical position is the one that is right. Now, divorce and remarriage is not a fundamental doctrine of the faith. Now, how could you say that, Pastor? Have you just said everything you've said? Well, simply because it's not a fundamental doctrine of the faith. It affects many people. It's very important. But there are good teachers who hold many different positions. Many different positions. Warren Wiersbe believes that you can be remarried after divorce for certain reasons. Chuck Swindle and many, many others. A number of years ago, I I did a poll of the Dallas Seminary faculty, and uh, the majority at that time, the people that I called, believed in some cases, then for some reasons, a person could be remarried after divorce. Martin Luther, John Calvin, both held that you could be remarried for desertion and for adultery. Now, John Calvin was a pretty, uh, pretty rigid person. He put people to death, some for not going to church. People didn't like him. He wasn't a favorite. Uh, He did some crazy things, as you read. Somebody named their dog after him. They disliked him. He put a contract out on someone's life. He was so angry that society would not put to death adulterers that he concluded as a result for adultery he could get remarried because society has abrogated their responsibility. Martin Luther was a little more uh, pliable and uh, uh, gracious in what he said, but we'll look at some of the things that he said. Lastly, don't lose perspective. Don't lose perspective as we study God's word. I am not your enemy. 
I realize, I realize that people get very intense. And maybe by the time you finally come to me, you're ready to just bust. But realize I am not your enemy. I will be happy to discuss things with you after we study them. Don't come up to me tonight and say, what about Matthew or what about Malachi? We haven't studied that and I can't begin to discuss that. At the end of our time, we'll have a question and answer time. If you want to go all night, I'll go all night. I'll be happy to defend what I feel is the biblical position. But I'll defend it from the word of God. But I'm not your enemy. So having said that, we can begin. A covenant in the Old Testament is an agreement between two parties that was mutually binding. Covenants in the Old Testament could be made, they could be kept, and they could be broken. Turn to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12 is an example of a covenant. Here God says to Abraham, or Abram, Leave your country, Genesis 12, 1, your people and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. And God says, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This is the what covenant? The Abrahamic covenant. It was an unconditional covenant. Well, it was conditional dependent upon Abraham going. After he went, it was an unconditional covenant dependent totally on God. It's, it's, it's uh, enlarged and ratified in Genesis 15, 17 and, and some other passages. Look at Genesis chapter 15. It says here uh, that God met with Abram and there was a, a little ceremony uh, of the, for this covenant. In verse 17 it says, When the sun had set and darkness had fallen... A smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. And he said, to your descendants, I give this land. And he specified the boundaries of the land. Here was the Abrahamic covenant. Now, some covenants such as the Abrahamic and the Davidic and some others are unbreakable and indissolvable. They're dependent upon the sovereign hand of God. Read the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7. There's a number of other covenants in the Bible. The New Covenant. The Palestinian Covenant. Others, however, such as the Mosaic Covenant, clearly were breakable covenants. Look with me very briefly at Deuteronomy chapter 28. Deuteronomy chapter 28. Here is the Mosaic Covenant. God clearly outlines the responsibilities for Israel and what would happen depending upon their behavior. If they were obedient, chapter 28, verse 1, then God said, all these blessings I will give you. Verse 15, however, if you do not obey and carefully follow these commands, all these curses are going to come upon you. And they go all the way through that chapter. Look at the last part of chapter 28, verse 65. Among those nations you will find no repose. God said he would scatter Israel. 
No resting place for the sole of your foot. There the Lord would give you an anxious mind. Eyes weary with longing and a despairing heart. You will live in constant suspense, filled with dread both night and day, never sure of your life. Verse chapter 29, verse 1. These are the terms of the covenant the Lord commanded Moses to make with the Israelites in Moab. In addition to the covenant he made with them at Horeb. So here was the Mosaic covenant. But Israel broke it. And God said in Jeremiah 31, I will not be like, it will not, the new covenant that he made, we don't have time to look, I was going to look there, that he would make with Israel, he said it will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers. When I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them. So covenants could be made, kept, and broken. Now, marriage, too, is a covenant. Turn with me to Proverbs chapter 2. Proverbs chapter 2 deals uh, with the adulterous woman. And in Proverbs chapter 2, verse 17, the Bible talks about the ways of wisdom. For the man who follows the path of God that should keep him from going to the path of the wayward woman. He says in verse 16, it will save you from the adulteress and from the wayward wife with her seductive words. Verse 17, who has left the partner of her youth and ignored the covenant she made before God. So marriage is a covenant. According to Malachi 2.14, which we don't have time to turn right now, we will study that passage. One of the witnesses to any marriage covenant is God himself. Ezekiel describes a picture of God marrying the nation of Judah as a covenant in Ezekiel 16. We'll study that passage as well. Very important passages. So marriage, too, is a covenant. Now, uh... The English, the best English contemporary translation for the word covenant is contract. A biblical marriage covenant should be understood as a marriage contract. The same concept of a covenant is seen in cultures surrounding Israel, in the ancient Near East, and later adopted by the Greco-Roman culture of the first century, even outside the, the Bible. Now, a marriage covenant, like other covenants, included some things. It included uh, details of payment. And we'll talk about those in a few minutes. You say, what payments? You'll find out. The agreement of stipulations by two parties. Now, next week, we're going to look at some of these, and it's very exciting to see what were the stipulations of a marriage. There were written ones and unwritten ones. Very important. A set of penalties for the party who did not keep these stipulations. And then, lastly, a legally binding witness ceremony or documents that recorded all these matters. Now, the marriage then is a covenant. Now, I want you to look with me once again briefly at Genesis chapter 1. Because there we see God's ideal for the marriage covenant. It is important to understand. 
In Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26, we read these words. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock and over all the earth and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Here is an initial statement of the creative hand of God, creating man and woman in the image of God. We have more details in chapter two. In chapter 2, God created the man. And he told the man in verse 16, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And you, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, God didn't say that to Eve. Adam must have conveyed that to her. She knew that she shouldn't have eaten. Verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Next Sunday morning, when we study, Lord willing, the role of the women in the church, we're going to study what that word helper means. And I have news for you. He's not talking about a carpenter's helper or some foolish idea like that. But here, God said it is not good that man is alone. I would expect at least one man to say amen after that. But... Catch the gravity of what he's saying. Here, before the entrance of sin, having a perfect relationship with God, God says something is not good. Up to this time, everything that God saw was good. This was good, that was good, this was good. And the first thing that God says is not good is that man is alone. And so God says that he would make someone a supply for him, something he could get in no other way. And uh, we read it in verse, um, he brought all the animals before him. Perhaps Adam looking at the animals, realizing maybe they were in twos or maybe that they couldn't communicate. He tried to talk with them and just got some noises, realized that, hey, I'm alone. And so it says in verse uh, 20, but for Adam, no suitable helper was found. There were helpers. He maybe had a dog or something else, but no suitable helpers. He, he, he was alone. So God created the woman and he brought the woman to the man. We're not going to we're just looking briefly at this passage to see in the context of what we're discussing. And uh, he brought the woman to the man and the man said, wow, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of a man. Verse 24 says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. Now, there are three key things we need to just briefly touch on as a basis for our discussion. There's a lot of different truths in here, but three that we need to touch upon. One is, is that marriage is of divine origin. In other words, God was the one who invented or created marriage. It wasn't invented by someone uh, thinking, hey, this is a good idea. This is God's intent. This is God's plan. Secondly, marriage is to be a monogamous heterosexual relationship. God didn't create two men. He didn't create two women. His intent is that a man would be married to a woman. One man to one woman. 
Now, you say, well, if that's so clear, how come polygamy was so rampant? And believe me, it was. You ever study polygamy in the Old Testament? It was rampant. It, it, it was more rampant among anyone that had money, and you'll find out why when we talk about what the requirements were for getting married in a minute. But if you look at many of the Old Testament people, the kings especially, they had many wives. Well, because looking at the Hebrew uh, and looking at that verse, it could be translated that they become one flesh and you could marry somebody else who become one flesh. And so the rabbis didn't see Genesis as prohibiting polygamy. Abraham took another wife. Many others did. Why God allowed it through the centuries, I don't know. That's something to get more angry about sometimes than some other things. But you look at it. And, if you, and, and, you, and you see the, the effect that it had. But Jesus says something very important in Matthew when he refers back to this passage and he changes the word showing the original tent, intent and he says the two will become one flesh. Showing that marriage is to be a monogamous heterosexual relationship. And then lastly, God's intent was that marriage would be permanent. And it says here that um, the couple would be joined together in a one flesh relationship. That word means a strong bond. Doesn't infer within the word alone that it's unbreakable, but it means that they will have a strong bond. Okay? So God's intent is that the marriage would be permanent. Now, at this point, we need to ask an important question. And uh, I know where I'm going. So trust me as we go through some of these things, as they might seem a little disheveled, because there is some basis that we need to form as we move on. As we now look at what marriage, the foundation of marriage in Genesis, we need to ask the question, can a marriage bond be broken? Now don't get too excited. Don't start throwing things as we study it. Realize this. If you hold a marriage bond can be broken, you can hold any position, no matter how conservative. If you're going to hold a position in no divorce, no remarriage, and we'll talk about that as we move on other days, you must hold that the marriage bond cannot be broken. But uh, if you hold that the marriage bond cannot be broken, you must hold one of those positions. But if you hold that... Now, you're never going to figure this out now. But if you hold that it can be broken, you can still hold any position. Now, can the marriage bond be broken? Can that covenant be broken? Some people say no. First of all, they say, no, because there's a one flesh relationship in Genesis. The two will become one flesh. They say no because of Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 19. What did Jesus say in Matthew chapter 19? So they are no longer two but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Thirdly, they say no because of the aorist tense in Mark 9. What God has joined together is in the aorist tense. And they say the aorist tense means once for all action in the past. We'll correct that in a moment. And then lastly, because of Romans 7 and 1 Corinthians 7, both of which say similar things that, for example, Romans 7 says, under the law, a woman is bound to a man as long as she lives. Now, when we come to those passages, we'll study them in detail. So we're not going to comment too much on those passages. Now, others say yes. I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Others say yes because of certain passages as well in the Bible. And the first is in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where Paul uses 
the same words we just read in the book of Genesis. Now look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And uh, look at verse 14. It says, By His power God raised the Lord from the dead, and He will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ Himself? Shall I take then the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never! Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? And then Paul says, for it is said the two will become one flesh. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Now the physical union of a man with a prostitute is likened to the two becoming one flesh. Relations with a prostitute could hardly constitute an unbreakable union. So they say it's not unbreakable. Secondly, Jesus' statement, let not man separate, would seem to imply that one could separate. You see, commanding people not to break something is no proof that it cannot be broken. If I say to you as you ride up the highway, do not speed, it doesn't mean that you cannot speed, but rather probably just the opposite. You see, the very fact that Jesus says, let not man separate, would seem to imply that man can separate. Hence the command, do not separate. Others say, uh, yes, because of Deuteronomy chapter 24. Turn there. We are going to study this passage in detail. How many know how significant Deuteronomy 24 is in terms of the discussion of marriage? Anyone? Who? Good. You cannot understand Matthew, what Jesus says, without Deuteronomy. Because uh, the whole basis of what they are asking the Pharisees is based on Deuteronomy 24. Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, gives uh, some instruction. This is part of the Old Testament law. The law is not just Ten Commandments that was given, that was part of it. There was a whole series of laws. Listen carefully. Chapter 24, verse 1. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house, and if after she leaves his house she becomes the wife of another man, And her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce and gives it to her and sends her from his house. Or if he dies, then her first husband who divorced her is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Now, there are so many key things in that passage that we can't even begin to cover it now. You will not believe what the rabbis went through in looking at that passage. But looking at it in terms of our discussion, that passage teaches that a woman who is divorced and marries another man is so completely and permanently severed from that first relationship that if she divorced her second husband, she's permitted and can never marry him again. How could that be an insoluble or unbreakable bond? They say it must be broken. 
Those who say, whenever you hear someone say the aris tense means once for all action, he has just declared to you that he doesn't know Greek grammar. He probably read it from a book somewhere and he just doesn't know what he's talking about. Because anyone who has studied Greek grammar to any extent knows that the aris means indefinite. It doesn't tell us if it's once for all action. Um, We can't imply that. The aorist tense in Greek implies nothing regarding permanence. It only states the action as occurring in the past, and perhaps from the context we can glean that it's once for all, but many times you cannot. But it only states the action as occurring in the past. Aorist means indefinite. So just because there's an aorist tense used, you can't use that to prove something that it doesn't prove. Hence the argument in uh, Mark chapter 10, verse 9. Well, uh, death certainly breaks the marriage bond, and both sides would agree to that. Lastly, there's a practical question. And the practical question is this. If the marriage bond cannot be broken, then practically speaking, how is a man or woman still bound to his or her spouse who's left and is married to someone else? How are they still bound? Well, even though we haven't studied in detail Romans and 1 Corinthians, we will. At this point, it seems that while God's clear intent is that the marriage bond not be broken, just as with the other covenants, it seems that the biblical evidence teaches that it can be broken. Certainly not God's intent, but it can be broken. Now, do you know why the Roman Catholic Church teaches that the marriage covenant cannot be broken? Incidentally, it doesn't matter to them that it can't be broken. I had a man come in my office who was married for 52 years and then he was annulled by the Roman Catholic Church. But do you know why? Well, they teach it based upon the fact that they believe marriage is a sacrament. Do you know why they believe marriage is a sacrament? Well, simply because the interpretation of the Latin Vulgate for mystery in Ephesians 5.32 when it talks about the church and then Christ in the church in marriage it says this is a profound mystery the Latin Vulgate interprets that or interpreted that um, in the uh, Middle Ages um, no, in the early centuries as a sacrament that's the word used sacrament originally had the sense of symbol or mystery but its meaning slowly changed and by the time of Luther Uh, It changed in Erasmus to meaning an immutable means of grace. We do not believe that marriage is a means of grace, nor do we believe that the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, is a means of grace. The only uh, way that we can get the grace necessary is through Christ giving it to us, dying on the cross. There's nothing else required. Marriage is not a sacrament. And uh, that argument falls apart. Now, having said this, you have to understand a little bit about the background of marriages in Israel. Let's talk about what marriages were about. In the Jewish family, young people did not normally decide who they were married. You heard about a blind date. How about a blind marriage? Often the parents would take into consideration the feelings of their children, but they were the ones who arranged the marriage. Now, an example of this is found in Genesis 24. I was going to look at it, but we just don't have the time. It's the example of Isaac and Rebekah. Now, every situation wasn't the same, but Abraham decided that Isaac needed a wife. So he sent the servant out. It's a wonderful story. 
And he got uh, a wife and he brought her back. He had never seen her, Isaac, had never seen her, particularly look at these verses. And then he brought her in, he loved her, and he married her. And uh, he devoted himself to her. Once the arrangements to marry were entered into, the couple was betrothed. Now, if you've never heard of betrothed, a betrothed was a formal commitment to a partner. The betrothal lasted for about 12 months during which time the home was prepared by the groom and the wedding clothes were prepared by the bride. The couple did not live together during this time. The betrothal could only be broken by a legal transaction. And the ground for such termination was divorce. You can read about that in Genesis 22:24. We were going to turn to it, but I'm short on time. It actually tells you in the betrothal what happens and what were to happen if there was unfaithfulness and there had to be divorce. While betrothal was more binding than our engagement, it was certainly not the same thing as being married. Otherwise, why get married? There was a difference. We'll talk about it next week. Mary and Joseph were betrothed when it was found out that she was pregnant. Now, women were usually betrothed before the age of puberty which in Jewish terms came at twelve and a half years, or whenever puberty appeared. Fathers were encouraged to avoid immorality by marrying both boys and girls while they were still minors. Eighteen was a good age to marry, they said. But God was disturbed if someone was not married by the age of twenty. Now there's a reason for this in the Jewish culture. They had felt that the Bible taught that you had to be married. Jesus, in Matthew uh, chapter 19, when he speaks about divorce, says something else liberating, that it is not necessity to be married. We'll talk about that. A girl's father had absolute control over her until she was an adult. He could betroth her to someone against her will, and she could not refuse marriage. An adult woman could not be married against her will, but most were betrothed before they had any choice. Now, a divorcee or a widow was in a very different situation from that of a young woman before her first marriage. She was now free to marry or not marry whomever she wished. Every divorce certificate in the Jewish culture included these words. You are now free to marry any man you wish. That was the purpose of divorce. Of course, she could not marry her former husband based on Deuteronomy law. Nor could she marry a priest based on another law in Deuteronomy. This is the same phrase that Paul used in 1 Corinthians 7.39 in talking to widows when he says, but if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes. But he concludes, and he makes another stipulation, he must belong to the Lord. Now, we've talked a little bit about the fact that marriage is a covenant. We've mentioned some of the things that a covenant includes. Let's just close by talking about some payments and penalties in the marriage contract. You see, in Jewish weddings, as in ancient Near Eastern culture, there was a bride price which sealed the betrothal. 
This bride price was generally about 10 months wages. Young man, if you found a young woman and you wanted to uh, 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 woo her and marry her, you didn't do it without some money. There had to be some foundation. And generally, if you wanted to marry that young girl, you had to have a bride price. There was no ifs, ands, or buts. And that was about 10 months wages. You had better go out and work if you wanted to marry her. This was very important. And often the groom, um, often the groom also gave the bride many gifts in addition to the bride price. There's an example of this in Genesis 24. It says, Then the servant brought out gold and silver and jewelry and articles of clothing and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave costly gifts to her brother and to her mother. There were other gifts that they give as well. Now, if any, uh, in, in, for example, in Exodus chapter 22, the bride price is mentioned. It says, if a man seduces a virgin who is not pledged to be married, betrothed, and he sleeps with her, he must pay the bride price. You see, he couldn't get away from this. They would think, well, you know, what if I just go sleep with her and then I'll get married and I wouldn't have to pay? No, he must pay the bride price and she shall be his wife. And what's more, if her father absolutely refuses to give her, the father had absolute control, he must still pay the bride price for virgins to the father. And so there could be a serious penalty uh, if the father would not give her. He had to pay that bride price. It is interesting that God's bride price in marrying Israel, the Bible says, was righteousness, justice, love, and compassion. If you read Hosea, he speaks about marrying Israel. And this was his bride price. This is what he paid when he took them. Now, there was also a payment of a higher amount called a dowry, which was paid to the bride's father. It was understood that the father would give a dowry well in excess of the bride price. So if you wanted to marry someone, you would give 10 months wages as a bride price. That father would take that and he would add a much greater amount to that. And the net payment then would be made to the groom when they got married. The groom could use the interest on this amount, but he could not spend any of it. The dowry could be regarded as equivalent to the daughter's share of the family estate held in trust for her by her husband. Now, if you don't understand this, you won't understand the Jewish wedding and a lot of things we're going to discuss. There was a great amount of money sitting here. And the reason, I'll give you a quick example. Uh, well, forget the example. Quick example. You will find that a woman, a woman could not divorce a man under Jewish law. Period. A woman could not divorce a man. And you will see why next week. It was well known. Very clearly well known because of the passages. But what would a woman do who was struggling? She couldn't divorce a man because based on Deuteronomy 24, the Pharisees concluded... I'm away from my notes. You're in trouble. The Pharisees concluded that... Only a man could initiate a divorce. He had to give her the certificate. What would be done is if the woman, maybe the man committed adultery, the woman would go to the rabbis. She would tell her story. And if there was proof or whatever it was, even if it was neglect, she would go to the rabbis and the rabbis would impose a fine on that man. 
they would find him so much that pretty soon he'd have no money left. And the Torah and the uh, the Mishnah says, if fines don't work, we'll use whips. In other words, if he felt he wasn't going to divorce her, they'd fine him until he had no more money left. The whole what's called ketubah was the whole combined amount that was there. And if that didn't work, they'd force him to divorce her because he was wrong. Now, we'll talk more about that next week. But this is very important. If a, if a couple uh, were getting divorced and, and, and there was no cause, the woman would get all the money. If the husband would prove adultery, she would get nothing. So there was a very important aspect of this money, this bride price, which was called a ketubah. Now, the purpose... Um, of these payments was, first of all, to give security to the marriage. It helped to ensure the marriage was not entered into lightly. You see, the whole system was weighed against divorce. Whoever caused the divorce was penalized financially. If the husband divorced his wife without a cause, he usually returned the dowry. If his wife divorced her husband without a cause, she lost her right to some or all of the dowry. Secondly, it provided a legal seal on the marriage, covenant. And third, it gave personal security to the bride. The dowry continued to belong to the bride. So if her husband died or divorced her, she had money to live on. It wasn't like our culture. When you understand a little bit about the women and the difficulties they had, a woman couldn't just go out and make a living. Now, Deuteronomy chapter 24 is an example of these payments and penalties in action. Because our time is up, we're not going to look at it in detail, but understand this. Just look at it. You should still be there. Look at the first verse. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent. You see those words, something indecent? From this day to today... There is argument among the Jewish culture as to what those words mean. They literally mean nakedness of a matter. Ervat devar is the Hebrew. And there's a huge debate. Unless you understand what that debate's about, you'll have no clue what the Pharisees asked Jesus in Matthew 19. And you shouldn't even have a position on Matthew 19 unless you clearly understand what's going on here. But the point that he's making is, if you're married to someone and they commit this, and let's just for argument's sake, something indecent means, say, something like adultery. And you divorce the woman for adultery, you would keep all that money. Then she goes and marries somebody else. If you'll notice and read carefully in Deuteronomy, the second husband just, let, just decided to leave. There was no cause for the divorce. So who would get the money? She would get the money. And one of the reasons that this is here is that a husband could not financially uh, make out in this way. He couldn't prosper in this way. You see, Deuteronomy chapter 24 is one passage of case law. Case law in the Old Testament law is a ruling in one particular instance that then becomes the basis of other later rulings. Very important. I guess the clearest example is in Numbers 15, 32, and 36. There you have someone who uh, they found collecting sticks on the Sabbath day, and they didn't know what to do. What did God say should be done? 
He was stoned to death. Whoa. Now they took that, and you wouldn't believe all the laws that came out of that. The same thing happens here. I'll spare you from saying much more, but we'll talk a little bit about it next week. This is a key passage of case law. You need to understand this passage. The phrase, something indecent about her, is ervat devar. Literally, nakedness of a matter. And we'll talk about the significance of what that means next week. Next Sunday, we're going to talk about understanding Old Testament law. One of the most misunderstood aspects. Unless you understood Old Testament law, you will be lost in understanding New Testament passages on divorce because they all go back there. There's some amazing things in there. Invite your friends. You won't believe it. What were some important stipulations in the marriage covenant according to the Old Testament law? Does the Old Testament law have anything to say about adultery? If so, what? Does the Old Testament give any guidelines about divorce? You will be surprised. Does the Old Testament law give any grounds for divorce? So you have a position on divorce and marriage. Okay, what are the four grounds the rabbis found for divorce in the Old Testament? Tell me. You need to know. And it's very important. Paul even deals with some of these when he talks about marriage. You might not have a clue what they are. What was the current practice of divorce in Jesus' time? Very important to our discussion.